Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Hagar-Johnson. Today, right before the NBA season starts, we are finishing out the division previews. So I'm here today with the same man I was with for the Pacific Division preview, which you should also check out, came out a couple of days ago, Jordan Schultz. Jordan, how are you today? I am doing pretty good. I just got off work. I'm really excited that my day off just happened to fall on Tuesday tomorrow, so I will be home to watch the, the NBA season kick off. Um, so I'm just, yeah, I am ready to you know get ready for some basketball. I got all my fantasy basketball lineups set for the week. It's, it's that time of year. I'm so excited. And let's jump in by talking about probably the least exciting team in the NBA, the Atlanta Hawks. So they are a drastically different team this year from the team that finished fifth in the Eastern Conference last season. They let Paul Millsap walk and reportedly didn't even offer him a contract before he went to sign with the Denver Nuggets. And that might also be coupled with the new head of the front office in Travis Schlenk, replacing Mike Budenholzer, who formerly was president of basketball operations and head coach. Now he will have time to focus on just his head coaching duties. But Jordan, what are your thoughts on Atlanta's offseason? I mean, they definitely, you can tell they picked they picked a direction and they committed to it, letting Millsap walk. I mean, when you look at the contract that, you know, he's he's on right now, that's they're definitely in a better position for what they're trying to do now, letting him go. And, you know, it's funny that, you know, they, you, they, you say they're one of the least interesting teams, but they're one of the teams I'm following closely as, you know, a team that's covering the Bulls this year for hashtag basketball. They're one of the threats to the Bulls' number one pick this year. And I think uh, the Bulls have a, a first week matchup against the Hawks. So that's like one of the games I'm more excited about. But yeah, they definitely uh, have some some young guys taking over. You know, I like Torian Prince. He's a nice piece there on the wing. I'm not so sold on their big men right now but you know john collins looks okay um the rookie they drafted but yeah they, they are definitely interesting they're definitely not going to be in contention for the playoffs anytime soon and probably their best player in dennis schroeder might miss at least some portion of the season after his misdemeanor battery charge travis schlank said that the hawks would likely wait until the legal situation plays out before disciplining him but that the plan was to discipline him and that might actually help their tanking efforts because Schroeder is the one player on this team that has proven that he can score in bunches, especially last season in the playoffs where he averaged a little over 22 points a game against the Wizards in that first round playoff series that they lost in six games. Yeah, he's definitely the best piece they have there to build around long term. You hope, you know, his legal situation, you know, gets resolved and, you know, that's just a whole nother saga there. Um, but he's he definitely has the potential to put up a nice uh, stat line this year. He's going to have the keys. There's really no one there challenging him. Yeah, I mean, that's he's really the centerpiece there. There's not really much else around him there. He's going to have to do a lot for them to carry them to the next stages of their rebuild if they're going to hope to, you know, have a, a two to three year rebuild as opposed, as opposed to one of those, you know, four to six year ones that just take forever and seem like they just kind of get stuck in the middle. Well, the other major piece in what will hopefully be the next Hawks playoff team is rookie John Collins, who they drafted with the 19th overall pick in the previous draft. And they're pairing him up in the front court with Dwayne Dedman, who they signed from the Spurs. And the Dedman situation, I think, is interesting because Dedman lost out on minutes with the Spurs towards the end of last season, and the rumblings were that he hadn't gotten along with Greg Popovich, and Popovich thought he might have some sort of attitude problem. Yet, he went to the Hawks, who are known for being basically Spurs East, both in terms of their play style during their 60-win season, but more importantly, that Mike Budenholzer, the head coach, was an assistant in San Antonio for 19 years under Popovich. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, you know, Deadman's shown, you know, he's going to step out and shoot the three a little bit this year. So, you know, he has a good chance to, you know, put up a little bit of numbers. But you look at him, I imagine he's probably only here for this year. If I remember correctly, he has a player option uh, next year. So I imagine most likely he's going to try and, you know, play his way into a bigger contract this year, opt out, and then probably head somewhere else. So maybe thinking from a business perspective, you know, show up in the system, put up numbers for you, and then try and cash out on a multi-year contract in a better situation next year. There other starting big man from last year other than Paul Millsap is also no longer with the team. Dwight Howard was traded to the Charlotte Hornets, the next team up on our list. The trade was Dwight Howard and the 31st overall pick for Miles Plumley, Marco Bellinelli and the 40th overall pick. So basically the Hawks traded Howard for a center on a far worse contract in Plumley and also traded down in the draft and Given what Zach Lowe reported about how Hawks players reportedly screamed in jubilation into their phones when they saw that Howard had been traded, there has to be something else here other than the on-the-court product, because if you're talking purely roster construction, I don't see how you could think that getting Miles Plumley for Dwight Howard is worth trading down in the draft. Oh, yeah, this was definitely just a move to get rid of Howard. I mean, the, from a basketball's perspective, you know, it made no sense where you mentioned they didn't even get good contracts back where Plumley's on a terrible contract. But I guess they're just thinking that the presence of a veteran like Plumley on a bad contract is better than having Dwight Howard in there. Obviously, if, you know, the young guys were that happy to see him go, some things didn't work there. Um, and it just speaks to them, you know, truly committing to the rebuild, whereas a lot of teams kind of just stay in the middle and refuse to do it. Atlanta just went straight forward. They knew this trade was probably going to make them worse from a basketball perspective, but they, they didn't hesitate. They shipped him out, didn't even really get a good deal back, but it probably just goes to show the market. You look at some of the other superstar trades and the returns they got there, uh, you you know, throw a guy like Dwight in there who's not on the level of some of the other superstars that switched teams this year, and you throw in that attitude problem. And I'm not surprised that that was probably the best offer they could get back for him. So speaking of Dwight Howard, let's move on to his new team in the Charlotte Hornets. And... We've already talked a little bit about the off-the-court issues that Howard seems to bring with him everywhere he goes ever since he left Orlando and lost the luster of the happy-go-lucky superstar that he had during his time there. But the biggest issue that the Charlotte Hornets had last season was a complete lack of depth at center. And when Cody Zeller was out last year, the team went 3-17. and And given that they finished the season 36-46, and they were actually an above 500 team when Zeller was in the lineup, but when Zeller was out with injury, they had to try and shoehorn Frank Kaminsky into a starting center role that he clearly wasn't ready for and just throw out a mishmash of other starting centers. So even though Howard is almost certainly a locker room issue, I think that he also solves the Hornets' biggest issue because one of him or Cody Zeller will be a far better backup center than anything the Hornets trotted out last season. Yeah, I think you'll definitely see Dwight start the year, you know, starting off. Uh, if I remember, you know, he has a connection with Coach Clifford, if I'm correct, from somewhere along the line there. Yes, Coach Clifford coached him while he was in Orlando. Yes, okay, that's right. So they, he has a connection there, so maybe that's part of, you know, why... I, you know, I don't know. The trade just didn't make sense. But yeah, from a basketball perspective there, I mean, you're going to see Zeller come off the bench most likely. Um, I think if you see them get off to a slow start, they won't hesitate to, you know, switch that and let Zeller get in there. Um, as you, you know, we talked about before, they're a team that most likely is going to be in playoff contention. Um, you know, with Batum getting hurt, that definitely hurts their chances a little bit. You know, we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later. But they, they're going to need a, a resurgence out of Dwight Howard. And, you know, with, with Batum going down, there's definitely some offensive touches that 
are, are open there. Um, so you, you wonder if he has a career resurgence. I'm just not 100% convinced that he's even better than Zeller at this point. You know, the, all the stats you mentioned there last year, you know, the proof's in the pudding. He looked good. He's on a much better contract long-term. You know, he's younger. Um, I just think it makes a little bit more sense to try and go with him. But I think you'll see Dwight start the year there as a starter. So I agree with you that Dwight will probably start the year as the starting center for the Hornets, but I would go farther than you did. I think Cody Zeller is a better player than Dwight Howard. He's almost the definition of a guy whose contributions to the game don't show up in the box score. He's a really good switch defender. He sets screens and rolls to the rim, unlike Howard, who's known for not wanting to roll to the rim and just sort of stand around and wait for someone to throw in the ball at a post-up situation. Zeller had a 3.42 defensive RPM last season, which was 13th in the entire league. Wow. He's a really solid defensive anchor who doesn't really have all that much vertical ability as compared to his incredible lateral mobility he can cover pick and roll switches better than almost any other seven footer in the league and i just think that the hornets record will improve as soon as coach clifford realizes that dwight howard is not who he was in orlando and commits to starting zeller full-time but going back to the nick batum injury that i think represents a huge problem for the hornets because batum was their best option as a secondary creator behind kemba walker and with batum out of the lineup you're relying on malik monk and it's never really a good idea to rely on a rookie to try and make the playoffs or michael carter williams who as i'm sure you saw during his tenure with the bulls is not really even qualified to be a backup point guard and Certainly should be third string at best in terms of being a creator, but with Batum out of the lineup, they don't really have much of a choice other than to give guys like Carter Williams or maybe even Julian Stone some serious minutes to start the year. Yeah, what a fall from grace for MCW, you know, starting off as rookie of the year to, to where he is now. Like, it's crazy, you know, like I thought, you know, when he got traded to the Bulls last year, he could be in for a little bit of a resurgence, but he just does not look like, he looks like a campaign type player, just not really an NBA player. Um uh, but yeah, you you know you're gonna they're gonna have to do a lot of uh, the offense through Monk now, which as you mentioned, never good with a rookie. <laughs> they're gonna be a team that's in that contention for that seven to eight spot all year long. But you know they're a team that I wouldn't be shocked if you know they do fall out of the playoff. Um, you know Michael Kidd Gilchrist, you, you know you're hoping that he can still turn it around at some point. Um, he's he's out for the opener, so you know is Jeremy Lamb starting there possibly? Dwayne Bacon. They don't have an uphill battle. You know you think maybe Marvin Williams maybe plays a little bit of time at the three. Just you know they have a little bit of uh, an issue at the wing uh, maybe they go you know some howard zeller williams lineups i just i don't know they're, they're a mess to start the year they definitely need batum back i think it's good um he didn't get the surgery so he will be back at some point this year um so they just kind of need to tread water until batum can get back and then kind of figure out how he fits in you know from there let's move on to the miami heat who had an abysmal and injury-ridden start to last season and then turned it on in a major way in the second half. They started the year 11 and 30. They finished the year on a 30 and 11 run and finished the year with a 41 and 41 record, which led them to re-signing basically all of the players that they had on one-year deals in Dion Waiters and James Johnson. They also extended Josh Richardson later in the offseason on a four-year, $42 million contract. And that's a lot of money for a Pat Riley team to be throwing at guys that aren't all-stars. So I was a little bit surprised at 
just the dollar figures that the Heat gave to those guys, and that's even before we talk about the Kelly Olynyk contract. But what were your thoughts on the guys that Miami extended this offseason? You know, I, I'm unsure on it. You know, they got, they went on a very, very good run to end the season last year, but I just, I have a hard time seeing them replicate that. And so to just kind of bring back their same, pretty much the same exact team and just kind of running it back, you know, they added, you know, Bam Adebayo, an interesting rookie there. Um, They're obviously counting on Josh Richardson to take a, a major step forward this year. I, they already named him the starter. He's looked really good in the preseason. Um. But man, I don't know, you know, with that Rodney Magruder, you now he's out for the year. Um, they're gonna really gonna need some of these guys they put a lot of money into to step up. Uh, you know, if you can get the Dion Waiters you got last year, then they're sitting a little bit better. But again, not a guy that I'm I'm really ever gonna feel too comfortable betting on. Uh James Johnson, you know, a 30, 30 year old that had his, you know, career breakout season last year. I, I don't know, there's just a lot of signs pointing to this team that this could be a little bit of a bust. And I mentioned it in passing earlier, but let's go back to the Kelly Olynyk contract. And I was a bit confused by this one, because if you're going to sign Kelly Olynyk, you're going to need him to be able to play at the four in some lineups and at the five in other lineups just to sort of hide him defensively. But they have a clearly entrenched starter at center in Hassan Whiteside, and James Johnson was at his most effective as a power forward last year. So I just don't see the point in adding a Linux for this team. Maybe Spolstra thought or Riley thought that the team needed some shooting from one of their big men with Chris Bosh, unfortunately, seemingly out for the rest of his career. But what were your thoughts on the Kelly Olenek deal? Yeah, I think you said it exactly. They're trying to get a little bit more outside shooting on this team. You know, you go down down their roster. Um, you know, Justice Winslow has not shown that he is capable of hitting the outside shot right now. Um, that basically leaves Dion Waiters, Josh Richardson, Goran Dragic there. You know, Hassan Whiteside, he's not going to hit any threes. Bam Adebayo doesn't really profile to be a guy that's going to step out and hit too many threes. So I think they're just looking to get more outside shooting to keep up with the rest of the teams in today's NBA. Um, you have to be able to hit threes. You know, you even look at the Bulls. They had a couple games where they're hitting 17, 18 three-pointers in the preseason season um i think he's just the type of guy that with his type of game he's gonna stick around he's always gonna be on teams just because he is a big that you know is an nba level defender i guess to the point like you said where you can just kind of hide him but if he can hit outside shots and he does present that value just in his ability to stretch the floor and you know make the defense kind of respect him on that end and spacing things out a little bit and I guess the other reason that I was somewhat confused by the Olenek contract is because it came after they drafted Bam Adebayo with the 14th overall pick. And he really impressed me in Summer League. He showed a lot more of an offensive game than he showed at Kentucky, where basically all he did was stand near the rim and rebound and dunk. He showed a lot more ball handling prowess than I thought he would have, but that summer league success did not translate to the preseason where he shot 38.7% from the floor and really didn't play much at all, averaged a little under 13 minutes a game. So do you think this is going to be more of a developmental year from Adebayo, especially with Olenek and Whiteside and... Johnson firmly entrenched ahead of him in the rotation? Yeah, I definitely think that's the case. You know, similar to how we mentioned with Malik Monk, it's not usually good to have to count on rookies to, to do a lot um, that first year. I think they're, you know, looking at this as just a, a chance to let him kind of develop for a year or two, and it can be a stopgap there. Although he's on a, you know, a longer term deal, um, so maybe more than just a stopgap, but he's not like an un, untradeable contract. Uh, but yeah, I definitely think, you know, the Heat do a pretty good job of developing and, you know, getting the best out of their guys. So they know what they're doing here. I think this was a move to be able to ease him into it slowly. I do think you'll see him play you know minutes in the second half but the heat are definitely a team with the way they're spending that have playoff aspirations so i can i can t see you know why they wanted to ease the pressure off the rookie a little bit so they can still you know try and make that playoff push and he doesn't have
of too much on him and you know you don't want to kill that confidence or anything when when he's still young from the miami heat to their florida rivals in the orlando magic and their biggest signing of the offseason was Jonathan Simmons. They got him for three years and $18 million with the contract that can go up to $20 million in incentives. And I thought that number was low for Simmons. I mean, given that Dion Waiters got twice as much money as he did, I think that's a solid deal for Simmons. He's a guy who doesn't really have an outside shot, but has shown flashes for the Spurs in the playoffs. And the fact that he was a rotation player for the San Antonio Spurs makes me think that he's going to be better than basically anything the Magic had on the wing last season, with the possible exception of Evan Fournier. Yeah, maybe. I also wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Simmons had his best year while he was with the Spurs. It wouldn't be, you know, the first guy we've seen kind of do that there where they get him there and then get a lot more out of him than any other teams have previously been able to do um you know he's also 28 so he's not like he's exactly super young you know the magic aren't gonna be a playoff team this year and you know like you said he doesn't have too much of an outside shot so i just you know like i said today's nba you're seeing that more and more unless you're elite at something else if you're if you can't shoot uh, you know, it's it's kind of tough to fit you in there, but it, it is. I think he'll be a nice value with that contract, $6 million a year. He'll, he will be a rotation piece off the bench there. Um, You know, he's got to be. Hazonia hasn't really shown much to this point. And, you know, they got Aaron Aflalo. Other than that, there's not really much off the bench there on the wing. Aaron Aflalo is not much off the bench, period. I watched him in Sacramento. I have never seen anyone chuck up as many bad mid-range shots out of the post as Aaron Aflalo. He thinks he's Kobe Bryant, and he's... <laughs> He's not. Let's just put it that way. That's the biggest thing I can say about Aaron Aflalo is that he thinks he's Kobe Bryant and he's a heck of a lot closer to Michael Beasley. And honestly, Beasley's probably better than him at this point. Yeah, Beasley's going to put up better numbers this year for sure. That's not saying much, though. No, I, I think, I don't know. I think Beasley will put up a little bit of a surprising stat line just because there's nothing else there in New York. But yeah, Aflalo is, yeah, he's, he is. You described it well. He does try to do those little Kobe fadeaways out of the post, but he hits them at a quite a bit lower clip. And teams are also starting to realize that Aflalo's reputation from his earlier career as a solid defender was really not all that realistic. He probably had his best years during his first tenure with the Magic, but he's just not the same player he was then. No, he is just there to be a veteran in the clubhouse right now and try and help these young guys grow a little bit. And speaking of the young guys, let's move on to their first round pick in this past draft, Jonathan Isaac who they took with the sixth overall pick. And I really like Jonathan Isaac's future potential, but I think that he will struggle mightily as a rookie. He's 6'11", and some people have said that he might continue to grow, maybe even hit 7 foot, 7 foot 1 by the time he's finished growing. And he's super, super skinny. So really the only position that the team could conceivably play him at is power forward. But after last year, hopefully the Magic have realized that they cannot play Aaron Gordon at small forward. It just doesn't work. He's not a good enough shooter. He's not quick enough off the bounce. But I think long term, if Jonathan Simmons can bulk up enough to play center, he and Aaron Gordon would be a really potent frontcourt tandem. Yeah, there'll be some growing pains with Isaac this year, but I, I do like him a lot, you know, if you're talking long term there. I think he's a guy that has the potential to make an impact on, you know, a lot of different aspects of the game, you know, defensive, rebounding. Um, I think he can be a decent scorer. You know, he's shown he has a decent stroke, so he could maybe potentially grow, you know, a decent three-point shooter in time. Um, but yeah, there's going to be some growing pains with him this year. Um, they're, they're dumb if they don't play Aaron Gordon at the power forward. Everybody saw last year when he is there, like he he's one of the future stars of the league. If they will just let him play there and just let him 
grow. But, you know, there's no reason really not to pay Isaac. I think he'll still see a, a decent role just because they're not a team that really should be going for the playoffs. Realistically, they should probably be trying for the number one pick more than the playoffs. But um, I think that does give him, you know, room to get in there, grow, maybe make some mistakes, have a little bit of a longer leash. Um, but looking long term, you know, they could potentially have some interesting combos there, you know, with Aaron Gordon, Jonathan Isaac, you know, if they keep Vooch around, he's on a very good contract right now. Um, they have the ability to do some interesting things there, especially if Isaac can uh, do enough out on the perimeter that, that you can move him to the three times possibly. Um, then you're talking about a really long front court. Yeah, I think I would rather try and play Isaac at the three than Aaron Gordon at the three, because we've already proven that Aaron Gordon at the three doesn't work. And I think Isaac's best long-term position is center, but having watched the Kings try and play Scalabissier at center last year, if you have one of the young kids that's just too skinny to be able to play in the post, I remember one game it was Nets-Kings and Brooke Lopez just shoved Scalabissier out of the basket two possessions in a row and Coach Yeager had to call a timeout and pull Scal because... Brooke Lopez is a grown man and Scout just couldn't handle it. And I think the Magic would see similar things if they tried to put Isaac in the post. But they probably can't really put Isaac in the post anyway because their two biggest contracts are Vucevic and Bismack Biombo, neither of whom can really effectively play any position other than center. No, I think that's exactly right. You'll see most of them there. You may see, you know, in two, three years when, when Isaac has had some time to fill out, um, you know, then he becomes an interesting, you know, five. Um, but for now, they should just let him play on the small four and, you know, back up Aaron Gordon at the power forward a little bit and let him grow slowly. And then, you know, add that, that center game, you know, when his frame allows for it. But yeah, he, he would get bullied down there. Uh, you know, you look at guys even like Kristaps Porzingis, they still struggle against some of the bigger centers and, you know, they, they would eat Isaac right now. Let's move on to the Washington Wizards, I think clearly the best team in this division. They bolstered their bench by trading for Tim Frazier, who I think is definitely a solid backup point guard and is underrated in that regard because people think of him more as an end-of-the-bench, third-string type of guy. And he's certainly not in the top half of backup point guards in the league, but he's a lot better as a backup point guard than... Trey Burke and last year's version of Brandon Jennings. Yeah, that's a nice signing. And they got him, you know, really, really cheap contract. He's going to play valuable minutes for them at some point. Um, he's had flashes where, you know, he's really, really put up some big numbers. And, you know, when he's had a chance, you know, to get some minutes, um, obviously with John Wall there, that's not going to be the case. But if he can just come in and play, you know, a solid 18 to 20 minutes a game, um, that's going to be a huge, huge improvement for this Wizards team. Um, I like them a lot this year. They, they should have won that series against the Celtics last year. Um, and, that you know, coming out of that game seven, um, you know, they, they brought back their core. They're still growing between, you know, between Porter, Beal, and John Wall. Um, I like what the Wizards have going here. They're going to be one of the few teams that could potentially challenge Cleveland in the next few years. And the other unfortunate thing for the Wizards is that Sheldon Mack went down with an injury and is expected to miss all of next season, which is really unfortunate. He was a decent option defensively as a backup guard. Again, he was not exactly stellar, but the Wizards need all the help they can get off the bench. Yeah, that was, you know, it wasn't a secret. Even John Wall came out last year and said that they needed to add some, you know, they need a little bit more out of their bench. Um, so they've done what they can to go get a few more pieces. You know, they, they're hoping uh, Thomas Sadoransky still has another level. Um, they're hoping Ubre continues to grow. Um, you know, uh, Scott Brooks likes him. He's said on multiple podcasts how much he likes Ubre. Um, you know, you add Tim Frazier there if he can do what we think he's capable of. Um, get a little bit of resurgence for Mike Scott. I mean, you know, it's, it's not a, a bench full of superstars, but it's enough to at least compete with, you know, teams like Cleveland who are, you know, 10, 
10 deep of solid, solid players, you got to be able to roll out more than they did last year. And another signing that might potentially help in that regard is Jody Meeks, who has really struggled with injuries the last three years. He played 60 games in 2014-15, just three games in 2015-16, and only 36 games last season for the Magic. And the thing about Jody Meeks is that if he's healthy, he can provide a shooting touch off the bench that this team really needs and got last year before the playoffs, but down the stretch of the regular season with Boyan Bogdanovich. And if Meeks can play, I think he will really help this bench unit. He's not a point guard at all, but if you play him alongside the right kind of players, you can maybe guard point guards in bigger lineups. And I think Meeks can be effective for this team. It's just a question of whether or not he can stay healthy. Yeah, you know, when he's healthy, he's, you know, a guy that can stretch the floor a little bit. Um, You know, he's hit, you know, over a three-pointer basically every single year of his career, except for, you know, his, his first two years and he's still developing. Um, He's a nice veteran presence, but yeah, I mean, the, the injuries have not treated him well. Um, You you know, at this point in the year, you assume health for everybody, but um, he's not a guy that I think Washington's necessarily counting on there, you know, long-term. You know, hopefully they get a lot out of him, but there's some of the guys around him I think they're a little bit more interested in. You know, I like Seth. Adaronski longer. I think even Tim Frazier has a little bit higher of a ceiling. Ubre definitely. Um, but if Meeks is nice, you know, if he's healthy, he's a nice piece for them. You know, a nice veteran presence. He could play minutes in the playoffs, and I don't think the pressure would get to him. Um, but the health is definitely the key with him, as it has been for most of his career. And now that we've gone through some of the bench moves for the Wizards, let's move on to their biggest move of the offseason, which was matching the onerous contract offer sheet that the Brooklyn Nets gave to Otto Porter where it's a max deal with a player option and it has a clause in it where the Wizards have to pay 50% of his deal up front on October 1st every year and honestly I don't think there was really anything else that Brooklyn could have done to convince the Wizards to not match on Otto Porter but ultimately wing players who can be effective on both ends of the floor are incredibly hard to come by and Porter shot incredibly well from deep last year and he's grown a lot since his rookie year where it really looked like he might be a bust but he's not as good of a defender as I think people think he is but he's got enough size and athletic ability to potentially be a solidly above average defensive piece and when you combine that with his incredible three-point shooting from last year I think it was worth it for the Wizards even if this offer sheet was basically as rough as it could get for the Wizards to match yeah it's a big contract but luckily for them you know they don't really need Porter to be the lockdown defender necessarily Uh, you look at Bradley Bill and John Wall and they're they're both fine defenders it's not like you know he's in Portland and has to be their shutdown guy Um, between you know the rest of their roster um, you know they can play some nice team defense there so you don't necessarily need him to be that you know that superstar defender but as you mentioned you know he really took a big step forward last year um I, I there was no reason they to not bring him back and match that contract you know with John Wall Bradley Beal and Porter there they have one of the most exciting young trios um you know John Wall 27 this year but Porter and Bradley Beal are still both only 24 um so you know they're locked up to big numbers but at least you're going to have them through you know their best years and then you can kind of reassess from there um I like what he does there um you know obviously he took you know a huge step forward and that's you know was key in their ability to really challenge Bob in the second round you just hope that he can keep going I, I don't know if he'll ever necessarily lived up you know to 28 million dollars 
calories, but you know, they don't necessarily need that when they have Beal and Wall there to do the majority of the heavy lifting. All right, let's move on from the off-season review to the five major questions for the 2017-18 season. And we're going right from the Wizards back into the Wizards. And my question for the Wizards is, can they crack the top three in the Eastern Conference? Yes, I, I think they will. I have them uh, pegged in as my number three team in the East there. Exactly. <laughs> I think they have a shot, and I think their ability to be the three seed depends pretty heavily on the start that the Boston Celtics have to the season. Because while the Wizards did win 49 games last season, they also had just a ridiculous run of health from their starters. None of their starters missed more than 10 games last year. They all played 70 plus. And given Bradley Beal's injury history and the fact that Marcin Gortat is going to turn... 34 this upcoming season and Markeith Morris is already scheduled to miss time at the start of the season. I just think that it's really very likely that the Wizards will not have the same incredible injury luck next year that they did last year. And I think that knocks their record down a little bit. That being said, I think the Raptors also got slightly worse this offseason with the departure of PJ Tucker and Patrick Patterson. So I think it'll be between the Wizards and the Raptors for that three seed. And then the question just becomes, can the Celtics start the season at a good enough pace to be, say, the one seed or the two seed down the stretch of the season? Because if not, then the Wizards and the Raptors might be duking it out for the second seed as opposed to duking it out for the third seed. Then again, I also think it's entirely possible that the Wizards could be behind the Raptors, the Celtics, and the Cavs. That wouldn't really surprise me that much either, given their run of health last year. Yeah, I just think there's, you know, in the NBA, there's something to be said about being able to keep, you know, the core of your roster together, which, you know, the Wizards were able to do. I mean, you look at both, you know, Cleveland and Celtics, they're both, you know, in the long term, probably going to be better teams, but they're going to have to figure it out. You know, Cleveland less so than Boston, you know, where they pretty much switched up like 75% of the roster, it seemed like this year, Um, at least at least of their rotation, it will be about that much. Um, But I I think they actually have a chance to get off to a pretty nice start and some of those other teams faulting, like you said. So I, I I feel strongly about the Wizards this year. I I think you'll see them most likely in the Eastern Conference Finals. If I'm predicting now, I think I would take them over Boston. Let's move on to the Miami Heat. And the big question for them is also the big question that basically everybody around the NBA was asking about this team from February until the start of the playoffs. Which Miami Heat team are we going to see next season? Are we going to see the 11-30 and 30 start or are we going to see the 30-11 and 11 finish? And this is a major cop-out, but I think the answer is probably going to be neither. The historical record shows that when teams are much better in one half of the season than the other half of the season, the best predictor for their record in the following year is not the stronger or the weaker of those two halves, but rather the team's overall record. That being said, I think a large part of that 11-30 and 30 start was just horrendous, horrendous injury luck. If the Wizards had really good injury luck last year, the Heat had some of the worst injury luck in the league last year, especially to start the season. So I think they're probably somewhere around a 45-ish win team rather than the 41 win team that their overall record would indicate that they were. But what are your thoughts on what kind of Heat team we're going to see next season? See, it, it's tough. You know, I already mentioned, you know, for a couple of reasons why I do see a little bit of bust potential in this roster. Um, but if, I, if I'm guessing now, I do think they'll be closer to that team we saw in the second half, but but not near to that level. Like, like you said, a little bit more leveled out. Um, They'll probably be somewhere between, 
you know, they're they're in that that mix between five to eight realistically in the East. I think more realistically, they're probably a, a seven or an eight seed over there. Um, but you know, they kept the majority of their roster together. So I do think I de- I definitely don't think they're you know the team that started off the first half of the season. But they're they're not a team that's you know gonna be a, a top three seed that would have you know if they would have kept that pace over the second half, they would have been. Moving on to the Charlotte Hornets, and my question for the Charlotte Hornets is, can they make the playoffs even with an extended absence from Nick Batum? And as you mentioned earlier, the fact that he's not going to have surgery means that his timetable for return is probably 8 to 12 weeks, as opposed to missing the majority, if not the entirety, of the regular season. And I think that the Hornets are a much better team than their record showed last year. Their point differential was a lot better than their 36-win record. I think it was closer to a 40-win team if you're looking just at point differential. And the fact that they now actually have two competent centers, and I think that's honestly an understatement about both even this late career version of Dwight Howard and the current version of Cody Zeller, I think that... Those pieces, combined with Kemba Walker, who also took a major leap last season, can lead the Hornets to maybe the 7th or 8th seed, even if Batum misses significant time. And given the strength, or lack thereof, in the Eastern Conference, I think they could make the 8th seed with something like 38 wins. Yeah, I think they're still a playoff team. Uh, obviously, losing Batum hurts, um, but but Kemba's the engine there. As long as he stays upright, they're going to be okay in the East. Just, you know, like you mentioned, the East is garbage this year. It's, there's going to be a lot of teams in the lottery from the East. Um, or, I guess earlier in the lottery, of course, there'll be the same amount from both, but there'll be earlier teams from the East in the lottery. Um, so, yeah, I think they're going to make it. They're, they're just basically going to be an easy first-round matchup for one of the, the few good teams in the East. Moving on to the Orlando Magic, and my question for the Magic is, can they win 30 games this coming season? And that seems like a low number, especially given that the Vegas line was 34 wins and that the team won 29 games last season and probably improved this offseason. But the issue I have with the Magic is that their point differential indicated a 24-win team, and somehow the Magic managed to win a bunch of games that they probably shouldn't have, despite not having really anyone that I think is a reliable crunch time scorer. And I just expect that to regress to the mean next season, and they're probably going to be shopping Vucevic and Biombo basically from day one. And even though Biombo is probably not going to live up to his four-year $72 million contract, and Vucevic is an offensively talented center who's a turnstile on the defensive end, the Magic would still probably get worse if they traded either one of those two guys. So I'm just not sure where this team's offense is going to come from, and while I expected them to be better on defense last year under Frank Vogel, they didn't really show anything on that end last year. Yeah, if you're setting the over-under, I'm taking the under on 30 wins. Um, Even, you know, when I did my win predictions a little, you know, like a month ago, I had them finishing under 30 wins. I think they'll come in probably around the 26 to 28 range, Um, you know, just for the reasons you mentioned. You know, they, they don't have a ton of offense there. Um, Alfred Payton is never going to be a guy that's really going to be able to do much for, me, for you for the outside. You know, you're really counting a lot on Evan Fournier there to be your outside presence. Um, Aaron Gordon isn't a guy that can shoot it. Isaac, you hope can eventually, but we already mentioned why we think it'll be a little bit slow sledding for him. Um, they're, they're definitely going to be a, under a 30 win team. I mean, if 
it, they they should be actively trying to be under a 31 team this year with this roster. They they need to probably look to ship away some of those guys you mentioned and continue that youth movement. Uh, they yeah, there's not a lot there. And They'll be under another team wins. that I'm willing to bet will be under 30 wins next year. The Atlanta Hawks. And my question about the Atlanta Hawks is also a pretty simple one. Are the Atlanta Hawks the worst team in the Eastern Conference? And I think the answer is no, but I think it's very close between them and the Chicago Bulls, your beloved Chicago Bulls. The thing with the Hawks is that I think that Mike Budenholzer will at least be able to coach this team to, say, 19th or 20th on the defensive end. They have nothing on the offensive end, especially if Dennis Schroeder ends up missing significant time, and their offense is just going to be an absolute nightmare to watch. But I think ultimately that the Bulls have slightly less talent, and they certainly have a worse coach in Fred Hoiberg compared to Mike Budenholzer. And the potential for the Hawks on the defensive end, combined with the coaching difference between Budenholzer and Hoiberg, leaves me feeling pretty confident that the Hawks are going to be better than at least one team in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, the as far as will they be the worst team, I, I definitely hope not. I hope the Bulls take that this year. And just looking at their roster, I mean, no, they're not the worst team. Um, you know, for one, Dennis Schroeder is better than anything on the Chicago Bulls. You take any two players and combine them, you're taking Schroeder. Uh, same with Bazemore. He's not quite to the level of Schroeder, but he's probably better than the Bulls have on there. I would go as far as saying that Tarion Prince is arguably better than any of the guys we have on the perimeter there besides, you know, Zach Levine, you know, excluding him while he's coming back from injury. Um, so, no, I think that they will be near the bottom, um, but I don't think they'll be the worst. I think they will be in that two to four range, uh, kind of in the mix there um, with, you know, the, the Hawks, Magics, the Nets, I think they'll kind of be that next tier of teams in the East. All right, let's move from the five major questions into the future outlook for the division. And I guess I already know the answer that you're going to have to this question, but will the Wizards be a conference finalist in the next three to five years? And you seem pretty confident that they could be an Eastern Conference finalist this season. I'm a little less confident in their ability to make the Eastern Conference Finals this season, but I think at some point in the next few years, maybe it's 2018-19, maybe it's 2019-20, that the Wizards are going to make the Eastern Conference because I don't think LeBron James will be a Cleveland Cavalier after this season. And once you remove LeBron from the picture, the Raptors are going to get worse because their best players are either past 30 or pushing 30 and will be in their 30s by the time we get to 2020. And as you mentioned earlier, the Wizards have a pretty young core in John Wall, Otto Porter, and Bradley Beal. So while I don't think the Wizards are a favorite to make the Eastern Conference Finals this year, I think it would be a pretty solid bet to assume that they'll make the Eastern Conference Finals sometime between next year and, say, 2022. Yeah, as long as they're, you know, they're a young trio there in the backcourt and Otto Porter stays healthy, they're definitely going to be in contention. Um, you know, the other teams around them are, you know, Boston. Um, they're obviously a contender for it. Um, you look at the Raptors, obviously they're going to be right there. And then, you know, in the next few years, you'll have the Miami or the Milwaukee Bucks entering that conversation, you know, possibly as soon as this year as well. So yeah, I doesn't think that they can make it there. They're definitely, you know, you're looking three years down the road, they're set up just as nice as any team there in the East, especially if you are assuming LeBron's gone from Cleveland. Um, then it's really wide open and then I, I you know I think John Wall is better than Kyrie Irving 
Um, so yeah, I, I like their long-term potential there. I, like I said, I, I don't know necessarily that they're going to make the finals this year. I think if I was putting money on it right now, I would go Cavs wizards in the conference finals. Um, but definitely in the next few years, they, they can definitely be right there. Moving on to the Miami heat. And I think the biggest question for the future of this heat team is, can they manage to lure a superstar free agent in the next few years? And given the contracts that they signed this offseason, I'm not sure that they really have a chance to get a superstar player in the next few years. And granted, you never want to bet against Pat Riley, and there's no team in the league other than the Los Angeles Lakers that more superstar players are presumed to be looking at in free agency. But I think the Heat will have to make at least one salary-shedding trade to be able to sign a superstar. And I'm also not sure which of the superstars that are going to hit the free agent market in the next few years are going to be looking at Miami when the Heat are probably going to be in the bottom half of the Eastern Conference playoffs. They would need to see some serious growth from Hassan Whiteside and Dion Waiters and see Goran Dragic continue to maintain his solid level of play before I think any superstar free agent is going to consider them over some of the other teams in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, it's definitely tough because they would have to make, you know, so, like you said, some moves to shed some contracts. Um, they are one of the highest payrolls in the league. Um, I'm not, I, I believe Chris Bosch's contract still counts against their books. They did actually get a medical exception for Bosch's contract. I'm not sure if it's that he's off the books this year or that they can't get him off the books until next year, but after this season, they will definitely have his salary off the books and be able to sign some major free agent if they can free up that salary in trades. Right, yeah, okay, Basketball Reference has him on the books for this year and next year. But even without that, I mean, they still have a ton of money invested in a lot of these kind of mediocre guys. I still feel like at some point the pendulum will swing back and some of these superstars will want to start coming east. And then I think Miami is, you know, an attractive free agent destination. Um, they've they've constantly gotten, you know, a lot out of their guys. And, you know, Pat Riley is a very well-respected guy around the NBA by most. Um, so they, if people decide to come east, I feel like they have to be a player. But it's it's more likely to come in a sign-and-trade because there would be, have to, you know, some guys that would have to probably get moved to make it work. All right, and moving on to the last question in the future outlook. And my question here is, which team do you think makes the playoffs first, the Orlando Magic or the Atlanta Hawks? And this is a tough one for me because I think that the Magic have the two best future prospects in Aaron Gordon and Jonathan Isaac. But on the other hand, I just have a lot more faith in the Hawks coaching and front office situations. Granted, both of these teams have new front offices, so it's hard to really peg exactly what their front offices can do. But I really believe in Mike Budenholzer as a coach. I think Torian Prince could be a really, really solid defensive player who has the potential to at least be average on offense and could maybe even make an all-defensive team or two in his career. And Dennis Schroeder is really hard to peg, especially given his legal situation at the moment, but he showed real flashes during that Wizards series. And ultimately, I just have a lot more faith in Mike Budenholzer than in Frank Vogel. So assuming those are the two coaches, at least for the next few years, I would have more faith in Atlanta returning to the playoffs. Not to mention that the Hawks have made the playoffs 10 years in a row before this year, where they're probably going to miss the playoffs. But the Hawks just have more of a history of success, whereas... The Magic have a history of drafting incredibly talented centers at number 
talent overall and then not being able to keep him for the long term. Yeah, Orlando is definitely closer to being a playoff team now, um, but I, I do think the Hawks will be in there before they get back. Um, I'm not confident that the Magic can even, you know, manage their superstars, or not superstars, but their, their stars and guys like Aaron Gordon, potentially Jonathan Isaac, into the playoffs. Um, I, you know, as we mentioned earlier, Budenholzer you know, spent 19 years on the bench in San Antonio. Um, they have some pretty interesting pieces there that are, you know, fit the modern NBA, um, especially if John Collins develops like some guys think he will. Um, so, yeah, if I was putting money down, I would put money on the Hawks being back to the playoffs, even though I'd probably peg them for my second worst team in the East this year. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? No, I'm just excited that we'll have had actually basketball to analyze next time you're hearing all of our, our podcasts on the network. All right. Well, he is Jordan Schultz. You can find him on Twitter at DinoNBA, which, as you might have heard in the Pacific Division podcast, is a new thing for Jordan. He's very happy he's got that Twitter handle, and he's also a very good follow on Twitter with that new Twitter handle. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. You can also find both of our work on the hashtag basketball website. And you can find Jordan's other podcasts in the hashtag basketball podcast network, the hashtag Bulls podcast, and the Dynasty Fantasy Basketball podcast. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a rating or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. iTunes is the biggest and tends to drive listens the most, but whatever podcast player you might be using, we would really appreciate it. If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or send me an email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.